You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now we're turning this morning to the letter to the Hebrews, and we're going to read in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll begin to read at verse 10 and read through to the end of the chapter. Um, Hebrews uh, is, a, is in our New Testaments is a letter, probably more of a sermon than a letter. Uh, it doesn't begin or end like any of the other letters. Um, and partly because it's a sermon, you know when preachers say, now the point I'm making is this, that's quite a help, you know, if he tells you the point he's making. In Hebrews at chapter 8, the author tells us the point he's making. don't want you to turn there in your Bible. I want to read it to you from the English Standard Version because the NIV is hopeless at this point. So, this is, this, just listen to what the author says. Now, he says, the point in what we are saying is this. So, this is the point. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So, that's the point. Now, let's read Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 10 to 18 and remember what the point is. For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, the pioneer of their salvation, perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. They all belong to one family. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and he's quoting from Psalm 22 near the end, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And again, now Isaiah 12 verse 2, I will put my trust in him. And again, now Isaiah 8 verse 18, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Complicated passage. So, what is the point? The point in what we are saying is we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister. The, 
the Greek word is a liturgist, person who conducts the liturgy, the worship service. And that's our theme uh, this morning. Um, when I was uh, 14, 15, 16, I went to a Bible class in our church, which those of you who from North America be interested to know was led by a man called Jimmy Stewart. And uh, we always began in the same way. Every single Sunday, we would sing these words, Jesus, stand among us in thy risen power. This was the 60s. Jesus, stand among us in thy risen power. Let this time of worship be a hallowed hour. Jesus, stand among us in thy risen power. I suspect most of us, when we think about worship, think, what do we do in worship? We're living in times when people speak about worship wars. Should you have a drum kit or not have a drum kit? Should the ministers dress up or not dress up? How do you sit? All kinds of disagreements about what we do. But it's a rare thing for anyone to ask the question, if Jesus is standing among us, as He promised to do, where two or three gather in my name, I will be there in the midst of them. If Jesus is in the midst of us in our worship, there's a little child's question that should come into our minds. So, what's He doing? And it's a very telling thing, isn't it, that to ask that question, what is Jesus doing in our worship? alerts us to the fact that so much of our own thinking about worship is so very vertical. In, in a strange way, it can be as much about ourselves as about Him, what we like to do, what songs we like to sing. So, that it's a very rare thing for anybody, at least in my experience, to ask the question, please, sir, if Jesus stands among us in our worship, what is Jesus doing there? Is He, is he just kind of, um, you know, this is terrific. They're all worshiping me. Well, it's interesting to me that the word that the author of Hebrews uses in chapter 8, verse 2, about the Lord Jesus, whom He's described as the high priest who makes the sacrifice that's necessary to bring us into the presence of God, Jesus, the high priest who makes the sacrifice, is also the liturgical priest who leads the worship. He is the one who makes the worship possible because through Him, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.18, we have access to the Father by the shedding of His blood. But He is also the liturgist. Sometimes in my travels, I've been in places, conferences, churches where uh, someone will bounce up to me and say, I'm the worship leader here. And uh, mentally, I zip my lips, mentally I say, son, you may be the bass guitarist, you may be the choir leader, you may be the drummer for all I know, you may even be the minister here for all I know. The one thing you are not is the worship leader, Jesus is the worship leader. And one of the marvelous things that the author of Hebrews has done 
Uh, this is not the chief theme of his letter, but he has woven hints into his letter that help us to understand what it is that Jesus is doing. Uh, as a youngster, when I prayed, sang a prayer at the beginning of, of those Bible classes, Jesus, stand among us in your risen power. Uh, we, we long for that. We long for the sense of the Lord Jesus among us. But Hebrews is teaching us He is not only the recipient of our worship, He is the mediator of our worship. We recognize that we cannot come to Him as we are in ourselves. What we often don't recognize is that we're not able to worship Him in ourselves, and yet we often think that, don't we? You know, we can't live a perfect life without His forgiveness, without His power, but the one thing we know how to do is to worship. And so often, even in churches, people never ask the question, does God tell us how He wants to be worshipped? Because that's not really relevant. God likes us to worship Him the way we like to worship Him, you see? And so, this whole question, what is Jesus doing when we worship Him? If Jesus is present with us, what is He doing? He is making our worship possible, and He is mediating our worship. I just want to pick out two or three little clues that are found in these verses that help us so much to understand what it is that Jesus is doing now as we worship the Father in the power of the Spirit through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me try and abbreviate this into just these quotations, or or even just two of the three quotations that the author of Hebrews uses in the middle of this passage. The first thing we learn here is that when we come to worship, the Lord Jesus gathers us into the presence of the Heavenly Father. One of the things that Hebrews makes clear, it's actually hinted at in chapter 8, verse 2, it's expounded in chapter 12. One of the things it teaches us is that although we are on earth when we worship, true worship means that we have access to heaven. Remember how towards the end of Hebrews, the author says, we, we haven't come to Mount Zion. We haven't come to, to Mount Sinai with the thunder and the lightning and the worship on earth. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to the spirits of justified men made perfect. We've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. That is why David said this, I think, last Sunday. And from one point of view, there is no place that is holy, but from another point of view, God makes places special simply because those are the places in which we find ourselves transported into a sense of the presence of God who dwells in heaven, where a multitude, a myriad of heavenly creatures and the redeemed who have gone before us worship Him in holiness and without sin. And our worship is, as it were, like the the antechamber to that worship. You know, those of us who are older, we remember the old folks singing with gusto, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. What was that? Was that nonsense? Actually, it wasn't 
the very best theology, the very best theology is not just that heaven comes down and glory fills our souls, but there is a sense in which through the Spirit, through the Lord Jesus, He gathers us into the presence of the heavenly Father who is surrounded by this myriad of angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim, of whom we get little glances in the New Testament. And our worship shares marvelously in that worship, which is why worship is such a heavenly experience, why the whole experience of being with the people of God, worshiping the Lord as Jesus gathers us into His heavenly Father's presence is like nothing else we experience in the world, because from one point of view, it's almost an out-of-the-world experience. And this is why the author of Hebrews draws from the wonderful words that are used here in the quotation from Isaiah 8, verse 18. He puts into Jesus' mouth the words, Behold, I and the children God has given me. One of our children crossed the border for university, and he went to a collegiate university where instead of graduating in faculties, the students graduated by colleges. And uh, in the graduation service, there was this kind of slight moment of embarrassment because the master or the president of the college would lead all the graduands from his or her college and then take one of them symbolically by the hand. These grown-up people take them symbolically by the hand and then address the presiding officer in Latin. There wasn't a single word of English in the ceremony, and essentially say, here am I and the children, and I present them to you for graduation. And they'd all come in in their undergraduate gowns, disappear, and they'd all be brought back again in their graduate gowns. And when, if you're a Christian and you see that, you think, that's exactly what happens, and that's a poor reflection of what happens every time we come into the Lord's presence in, in worship. He takes us by the hand, and He brings us to the Heavenly Father, and He says, Father, here am I and the children You have given me. And we find ourselves as children, therefore, looking with Jesus up to the Heavenly Father as He mediates our worship. And we're conscious, aren't we, that we are His children, and therefore we are brothers and sisters together, and this is the weekly family reunion. And the soul, the whole experience of worship is transformed by the fact that we know that this is what Jesus is doing when He stands among us. But there's a second thing here, and, and this, is, uh, this is related now to the quotation from Psalm 22, which you'll find in verse 12. Jesus brings us into the Father's presence, and then Jesus actually conducts the worship. This is why I say the bass guitarist, the drummer, the organist, the choir master, nay, not even the minister or the bishop or the archbishop or the metropolitan is the worship leader. 
Now, look at the way this is expressed, as now it's words from the 22nd Psalm that are put into Jesus' mouth. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, almost everybody in the room knows Psalm 22 and how it begins, but we have this kind of bad habit of we know how it begins, but we don't know how it ends. These are the words, uh, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words that Jesus uses to express His sense of desolation on the cross. That's not where Psalm 22 finishes. Psalm 22 finishes with His resurrection and ascension, His triumph and His victory, and that's where these words belong. On the other side of the resurrection, on the other side of the ascension, the author of Hebrews puts these words into the mouth of the Lord Jesus, listen, he says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Actually, just by the way, that's one of the reasons in our church we sing psalms. It ain't just because you sing psalms in the free church. It ain't now in the modern day because you've got to sing two psalms in the free church every Sunday or whatever the rule is. The reason we sing psalms is because Jesus sang psalms. And the reason we sing the psalms that Jesus sang is because it gives us such access to Jesus. Every time you read a psalm, isn't this true? Every time you read a psalm, one of the questions you should always ask is this, what would Jesus have meant when He recited this psalm or sang this psalm? It, it, it will, that's such a help to, it's such a help to help you understand who Jesus really is, the way in which the psalms express this full range of emotion. And of course, the New Testament assumes we'll sing these psalms. If you're filled with the Spirit, says Paul, you will sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. If the Word of Christ dwells in you richly, and what better way for the Word of Christ to dwell in you richly than for it to dwell in you richly as you sing it? You'll sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And there's something very fascinating about the psalms. This isn't a scientific, uh, statistical exploration I've made. But the direction in which the psalms move is threefold. And they, they almost fall into 50, 50, 50, if that makes sense, since there are 150 psalms, or 33 and a third percent, 33 and a third percent. Many of them, of course, are directed towards the Lord, many of them, but not all of them. So don't be so pious that you never sing something that isn't directed towards the Lord. Many of the psalms are directed towards others. So, unless you have a medical condition, don't you dare stay silent when we're singing. Because if you do, you're robbing your fellow Christians of a ministry that God has given to you. Remember how Paul puts it? When you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you make melody to the Lord in your heart while you are teaching one another. You say, I never get the opportunity to teach in St. Peter's. It's always these old men. 
No, you have an opportunity every Sunday, many minutes every Sunday, to teach us as you sing these psalms. And then there are psalms that are self-directed. Why are you cast down, O my soul? You see, when we're, when we're, as they say nowadays, preaching the gospel to ourselves, which we always need to learn to do. And you see these, these dimensions. This is, this is the whole of our Christian life, directed towards the Lord, directed towards one another in fellowship, directed towards ourselves. And in the midst of it all, Jesus. And just uh, think of it this way. Think of Jesus standing in the midst of us. I mean, don't you love it when you hear some great singer uh, singing with a massive choir and their voice kind of rising above? You, I mean, you find lots of these on YouTube. I can give you some recommendations, male and female. And there's one voice that enhances the whole as it rises above the others. And this is what happens because He's the mediator of our worship. He's the leader of our worship. If your voice is rotten, sing with Jesus. His voice will cover your voice, because He's here to lead us in our worship. So, Jesus is present with us to bring us, first of all, into the Father's presence, which is why, incidentally, there's, there should be orderliness in our worship, the discipline of a home, and also the sense that we are family together so that we're, we're not stiff in our worship. And then Jesus actually leads us in our praises. And then there's a third thing here, and I think with this I'll finish today. There's a third thing here. And this is, you would think this is, well, obviously he's a preacher. This would really interest him. But this is of interest to all of us. Jesus brings us into the Father's presence. Jesus leads, in our, leads us in our worship. And then, look at these words again from Psalm 22, verse 22, that are quoted in verse 12. Into the mouth of Jesus, Jesus says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Jesus brings us to the Father. Jesus leads our worship. It's Jesus who preaches His Word. Isn't that the case? I mean, how many sermons did it take to bring you to faith in Christ? I met a young man who had listened to a sermon I preached every day for a month, same sermon, every single day for a month. It wasn't a complicated sermon. Honestly, it wasn't a complicated sermon. Every single day for a month, and on the last day of the month, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Why did he not do it in any of the previous days? Why was it you'd heard a hundred, maybe a thousand sermons, and you never really came to faith in Christ, and then you would say to somebody, then I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. What was so special about that sermon? It was that in that sermon, for the first time in your life, your eyes were opened to see that it's Jesus who is the real preacher and not the guy at the front, which is why the idiosyncrasies of the guy at the front, however great they are usually, are slightly eliminated during the course of 
the sermon is the reason why, through the very same words, the Lord will work in different ways in our lives. It's because Jesus is the real preacher of the Word. You say, well, that's a terrific idea, Ferguson. That really is a terrific idea. But of course, you don't find it in the New Testament. Give me a verse in the New Testament. Well, listen to this from Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read it to you. Granted, it's in the ESV, but you can buy an ESV. Listen to what Paul says. He's speaking about the way in which Christ has brought peace to us. And then he goes on to say this. This is Ephesians 2 verse 17. And having brought peace to us through the blood of the cross, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were afar off. That's technical language for Gentiles, which most of the Ephesians were. He came and preached peace to you who were afar off, as well as to those who were near. That's kind of technical language for Jews. So, my question is, put your hand up if you know the answer to this question mentally. When did Jesus visit Ephesus to preach? When did Jesus visit Ephesus to preach? What verse in the Gospels do you not know the verse in the Gospels that tells you about Jesus visiting Ephesus? No, of course you don't know the verse in the Gospels. There's no verse in the Gospels that tells you Jesus visited Ephesus. Jesus never visited Ephesus. So, how did Jesus go to Ephesus to preach peace? Ah, when Paul went to Ephesus to preach peace. That's, but, but he says it was Jesus who came. And this isn't the only verse in the Bible that helps us to understand that that through the power of the Holy Spirit, when the Word of God is preached, it is Jesus' pleasure to come and to preach to us, which is one of the reasons why if you stand at church doors and shake hands with people, you're kind of amazed what people have heard in the sermon and how it has been applied to their lives, because you know you didn't do that. I mean, every, everyone in this room who preaches, and there are quite a few of us who preach, has had somebody say to us at the church door many times in life, has somebody been speaking to you about me? Well, of course they have. No, they haven't. It's Jesus who has been speaking to you about you. And as the Spirit has worked, you have heard the voice of Jesus speak to you. And he puts all this in the context of how, how Jesus is the high priest who is gracious and merciful to us. And this is the reason why, this is one of the most amazing things about being a preacher. I have often been in the middle of ripping up people's consciences in my sermons and caught sight of, of old Mrs. So-and-so or, or someone who is in, in deep distress or, or someone who is grieving in one way or another, and I've cried inwardly and said, oh, Lord, what am I doing here? This isn't what they need. This isn't what they need. They need balm poured into their wounds, and I'm thundering away here and talking about their sin and, and, and uh, how they need to repent. And, and, and if you've any kind of sensitivity, it's an agony to be doing it. And then so often you, you meet them uh, either in the church or sometime 
later on, and they'll say, you know, that was a word for me. And you think, how can it have been a word for me? This, my friends, this is the answer. Because if Jesus Himself is doing the preaching, if we catch sight of Jesus and hear His voice, in a sense, it doesn't matter what He's saying, as long as He's the one who's saying it. And so, we discover something bigger than the sermon, something, in a sense, even bigger than the exposition. We discover that because He is the one who is speaking to us, as Hebrews goes on to say, He is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to God through Him because He's an all-sufficient Savior. And so, it's almost in passing, although by the time we've kind of lost our way a little into chapter 8, He's good enough to say, now, don't forget the point. The big point is He is the great high priest who has made a sacrifice for us and is now interceding for us. But don't forget the little point I was hinting at back there in chapter 2, that Jesus is the one who is the liturgist, the one who brings us to the presence of the Father, the one who in these marvelous ways leads us in our praise and the one to whom we listen. You know, sometimes you go to churches and someone will stand up and say, the first half hour we're going to worship, and then there's going to be a sermon. And I kind of inwardly say, actually, the deepest worship is so often in response to Jesus speaking to us in His Word and saying, come to me. That's back to my 1960-whatever text, isn't it? You search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. It is a very good thing to do. But the Bible doesn't save you because the Bible didn't die on the cross for you. The Bible's here to point you to the Lord Jesus, who does save you because He did die on the cross for you. And so He says, will you not come to Me for life? And what Hebrews is saying, that's just the beginning of worship that will go on throughout all eternity. And we have the inestimable privilege in numbers of being able to share in that every single Lord's Day. What a privilege that is. So, may God help us to worship in the presence of Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the ministry of Your Word, and most of all, we thank You that this book, uh, written by so many human authors under the inspiration of Your Spirit so long ago in so many different places and at different times, has been in the last analysis brought together by the Lord Jesus to use as an instrument through which He would teach us about Himself, about ourselves, and about what it means to worship together in the Spirit. So, help us to know every Lord's day that our Lord Jesus fulfills His promise that where two or three gather in His name, He will be there in the midst of them. We ask it in His name.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.